0: If a tree falls in the Amazon, will we hear it? Climate One conversations feature oil executives and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. I speak for the trees, and I'll yell and I'll shout for the fine things on Earth that are on their way out. Fires have been tearing through the Amazonian rainforest, as well as Northern California and even Norway. Why should we care about trees that burn halfway across the world? One reason is that global deforestation carries major implications for the climate. The Amazon alone is responsible for removing 5% of the world's 40 billion tons of CO2 emissions from the air each year. When forests burn, carbon storage is lost, along with biodiversity, indigenous culture, and more. But fire isn't the only threat to our planet's forests.
1: We're at this stage because we've treated the earth like a resource to be exploited for profit.
0: Agriculture, ranching, mining, and our insatiable need for palm oil are just some of the dangers our trees face.
2: Palm oil makes up probably somewhere between three and 10% of pretty much every consumer good (laughs) product that you're going to buy at the grocery store. And so um, it is a leading driver of deforestation, especially in Southeast Asia, but increasingly in Africa. On
0: today's program, we'll talk about the climate factors and the global consumerism driving deforestation as well as the seeds of change being planted by organizations, corporations, and governments. Joining me on the Climate One stage are Paul Pazimino, Associate Director at Amazon Watch, an environmental group that advocates for the rights of indigenous people, and Tara O'Shea, Director of Forest Programs at Planet, a San Francisco company that builds and operates satellites that image the Earth's surface every day. Joining us remotely from his office in Minneapolis is Corey Brinkema, He's president of the Forest Stewardship Council, or FSC, an international nonprofit that promotes responsible management of the world's forests. The Amazon used to be one of the few positive climate stories. I remember attending the International Climate Conference in Cancun in 2010, where Brazil's president Lula da Silva said deforestation was at the lowest level in two decades. Brazil was an emerging climate leader. Paul Pazimino brings us up to date.
1: Yeah, well, first I would say um, that's true to a great degree. Um, However, at the same time, there were still and still remain challenges for the rights and protections of territories of Indigenous peoples, even when deforestation rates were decreasing. Um, And as an Indigenous rights and environmental organization, that's something that always comes first when we're looking at the situation. However, it's true that um, with... A lot of pressure and a lot of international focus and global attention, we were moving in the right direction. Brazil was moving in the right direction. Deforestation was down. Um, monitoring of deforestation was down. And the pressure on illegal uh, loggers and, uh, and mining, et cetera, was increased. And so agencies that were monitoring it, like Obama, for example, which is Brazil's Environmental Protection Agency, mm-hmm. were able to target and even destroy uh, machinery that was involved in deforestation until the current regime. And things have shifted drastically in the last few years.
0: So Tara tell us, explain the fires that, that were in the headlines earlier in 2019. Where were they? Uh, what was causing them? Kind of you know, re- refresh us on, on the basics here.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's really important to note that that the fires that happened, you know, and are happening at, at this time in the Amazon basin, um, the majority of which are on lands that were cleared this year. Um, so it's it's sort of different from how we think of wildfires here in California or in the global north, where it tends to be from a buildup of biomass. Um, you know, there's a lot of pressures, as we just heard, in Brazil to clear land for our agricultural production, and that's typically done in kind of a slash and burn process. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually what what we're seeing now, and we're seeing it in the data. There's increased amounts of forest clearing, and there's unprecedented. Unprecedented amounts of forest fires.
0: And unprecedented. So uh, there was some d- debate, really, actually, that it was about, um, you know, h- whether this was... Uh really larger magnitude fires, or whether it was just more increased attention to them. So if you look, you know, over the last 10 years, uh, there's some debate of whether these fires were really that more, you know, more than last year. But, you know, give us, you know, the historical context: were they really as bad as they were portrayed to be?
2: Yeah, you know, I do think it's twofold. I think transparency has increased. And you see that not only with advances in earth observation technologies, but also sort of just access to media. But that being said, um, it is it is more and it's more than the historical baseline that we've And sort of both of those factors are increased, both the clearing um, as well as as the fires.
0: Okay. Corey Brinkema, your origin story for your organization actually dates to Rio in 1992. Tell us um, that connection.
3: Sure. So, yeah, the Forest Stewardship Council really grew out of uh, the failure at that uh, Earth Summit in Rio in 1992, uh, where governments were were coming together in in part to to tackle especially tropical deforestation, and uh, with without any compacts or major agreements uh, at the conclusion of of that summit. Uh, it really, it, it came to uh, some of the activists and, and other members of civil society, some progressive corporations and others who who banded together and, and looked essentially for a non, uh, non-governmental, non-regulatory solution. And, and uh, from those uh, kind of early beginnings, our, our certification system. Uh, FSE was was born, and we're we're yeah celebrating our 25th anniversary. And yeah, it's uh, obviously unfortunate times, I think, in in uh, you know the place of our of our origin uh, in Brazil. So, and, and I think one thing is important to recognize, uh, you know, in terms of uh, statistics out there. I mean, I think the 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 rate of deforestation in in more you know more recent times here uh, preceded this this current president i think we we saw some some great progress from probably twenty o four to two thousand twelve or so and and then with uh, the recessionary impacts uh, and and corruption in a government i i think some of the ability of of the government agencies there to uh, police, uh, uh, the, the laws that were on the books uh, began to decline. And, and then obviously with this, with this current administration, uh, yeah, we've seen, I think in the last year, uh, deforestation rates uh, by several accounts uh, increasing uh, twofold uh, uh, from just last year.
0: O'Shea, uh, are, are forests more at risk when the economies are good or bad or both
2: <laughs> I think it's a mix of both, um, and I think you know it's it's a really important point because I, I think we have to think of economic incentives around forests right many many forests, many of these sort of remaining tropical ecosystems are in developing economies um, there's a lot of pressure for economic growth um, and you know in 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 many places, the economic incentive is such that it's it's more lucrative to use land for agricultural production than it is to maintain a forested ecosystem. And I think um, you see that at play, you know, in terms of soy in Brazil or palm oil in Indonesia. Um, and and that's, that's really, you know, often at, at, at the root of, of the problem. And so um, you have to think of it as a global issue. It's, it's certainly linked to, to global trade.
0: And how has global trade has been disrupted recently, you may have noticed. Um, and um, how is the, the tra- tariffs and the trade with China affected Brazil?
2: Yeah, I think it's, you know, that's that's a really timely question. I think it was in in March of this year. There was a group of researchers out of Germany, Richard Fuchs and and some colleagues there, um, and they actually sort of said, you know, that the the amount of of export soy export from the U.S. To China was down fifty percent due to our our tariff war. And they they modeled and predicted that Brazil might need thirty-nine percent more land in its soy production in order to match demand coming out of China. And so those are just really strong incentives. And that was a a publication in in March of this year, really was is forewarning in some ways. But again, it's it's really important not to think of these just as environmental issues. These are economic and, and development issues as well. And we really have to to have that lens when we look at the climate issue in particular.
0: Paul Pazimino, there's been some pushback from Brazil for sort of uh, the Global North, sort of you know, Americans saying like what they ought to do uh, with their forests. Imagine if some foreign country told us what we ought to do with the forests in the Pacific <clears throat> Northwest, right? So tell us about this sort of a, uh, overlay of, I don't know, colonialism or uh, pa- patronizing toward uh, these Latin American right. countries.
1: Well, first, I think the, the other thing to add about the misperception about the fires is the direct attack that many of them were on indigenous territories. Over 9,000 mm-hmm. fires set this year on indigenous lands in the Amazon, in the Brazilian Amazon, 5,000 of them in August. So this was area that was cleared prior illegally on indigenous territory. And now the, that land is burning. Um, there was there's a deliberate and direct Expansion and as the indigenous communities of Brazil see it, attack on them. And that's where I find it outrageous that Brazil would have the audacity to suggest other countries shouldn't tell them what to do with their Amazon when they're literally killing the indigenous people who have been living there for millennia. It is areas that they have storeded on behalf, essentially, of everyone on the planet. And Brazil is saying, you shouldn't tell us what to do. I mean, Bolsonaro said today at the United Nations, the Amazon Amazon isn't burning. Indigenous peoples don't want to be poor. They want to exploit the land. You know, we're living in essentially the Trumpian area of Brazil where the truth has no connection to what people are actually saying and the, the ones suffering are the ones who are on the front lines of this battle.
0: O'Shea, tell us about the link between Paris and and protecting forests.
2: Yeah, uh, forests are a big part of the Paris Climate Accord. So, through Article Five of, of the Paris Climate Accord, um, developing countries can receive performance based payments for conserving forests. Um, and again, this is is really this has been a lot of work throughout the international community. Probably twelve years of negotiations to to establish these sorts of frameworks and and measurement systems. And again, it really gets at getting at that root problem. Around 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 how can we create a pathway to a more sustainable model for economic development. Um, And so, uh, you know, through this process, you have about 64 countries that are are eligible for performance-based payments. Um, Planet actually just began working with some of those measurement and verification systems at at the United Nations. Um, so it's, it's a really important piece. And again, it's a big part of the climate puzzle, right? Our, we're looking at um, about 23% of emissions coming from the land sector. So um, we really need these nature-based solutions, not only for the climate, but also for, you know, these numerous other benefits as well.
0: And so can Planet actually verify? Because there's a lot of concerns about forest programs. If somebody gets paid to keep a, f- a forest intact and like, well, okay, what happens when someone turns their back or they got the money? Uh, can you actually Monitor that over time to make sure that those countries are protecting the forests in a way that they're getting paid to do.
2: Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, there are very robust what I would think of as methodologies around. You know, how do you measure these things? How do you prove that they are additional to historical baselines that that they're not creating leakage? Um, sort of at the community and, and jurisdiction level, uh, the Verified Carbon Standard provides some some third party audits within the UN process itself. Um, there are what's called MRV, Measurement Reporting Verification Systems. Um, These all use a combination of of satellite data and ground data. Uh, Essentially what they're looking at is forest area change compared to a baseline, and they multiply that change according to a carbon coefficient. Um, So with planet data, um, so as as you mentioned in the the beginning, we are now imaging the full Earth every day at about 3 meters per pixel, so it's it 's sort of an unprecedented data set in terms of spatial and temporal resolution, um, so where we are really focused is providing a new data set into that forest area change estimation um, so in short, uh, yes, our data is is and yeah. making those those uh, more, more accurate
0: uh, Paul Pazimino, the California has a new tropical forest standard. The idea is that people could achieve some some savings uh, or, or California companies can get some credit by protecting a forest somewhere else. Uh, this is, I believe, it's proposed. You got some problems
1: with it? Yeah, we have a lot of problems with it. Uh, we've brought many indigenous leaders up to engage uh, with the board before that moved forward. This is the California Air the, the Board, California, which is starting yes. to
0: implement this. Yeah,
1: I mean, there are, the bottom line is that we are here working to protect the environment on behalf of everyone who lives on the planet. Nobody gets more of a right to enjoy that than someone else. And what we and our indigenous allies would call that is a scheme to essentially allow one to pollute somewhere and harm someone, usually communities of color in order to benefit somewhere else. And the, there are other ways to go about protecting forests. And so we've seen leader after leader come up and explain this is the system that put them in the place that they are to have to challenge and fight for their right to exist and to protect their forests. So by California doing that, and my hope is that the governor will not proceed with it and it will not become a policy that we, that we use as a state. There, there are so many other things that we can do that would actually protect forests instead. And so we would label that a false solution. And I think you know, because of the kind of organizations we are, we take the lead from the indigenous communities who are on the front lines first. Um, the Indigenous Environmental Network, Tom Goldtooth, has said plenty about why the tropical forest standard is a perpetuation of the system that has repressed indigenous communities in the United States and elsewhere for generations.
0: Almost a a decade ago, the Consumer Goods Forum, a global consortium of major retailers and manufacturers, pledged that their 400 member companies would achieve zero deforestation by 2020. As that date approaches, they are not even close. Sarah Rogerson works with Forest 500 Project, which tracks how large companies and financial institutions are linked to deforestation.
4: We focus on tropical deforestation. So we're looking at Latin America, Southeast Asia, and some parts of Africa as well. In our assessments from last year in 2018, we actually only awarded the top score to two companies, which are Nestle and KO Corporation. So it's a few leaders, and there's still many consumer goods Forum members who haven't even begun to try and tackle the deforestation that they're exposed to. Uh, We looked at the companies that are in the Forest 500 and part of the Consumer Goods Forum, and one-fifth of the set of companies that overlapped between those two samples still hadn't set their own commitments. Um, There's definitely a lot of companies who have written up commitments and said that they'd be acting on it and not begun to implement it and not making any progress. We cover palm oil, soy timber and paper and beef and leather. Beef and leather companies have always lagged behind in terms of setting commitments and promising to tackle the deforestation that they're exposed to and cattle drive the most tropical deforestation globally so that's quite a big gap. The reputational risk of being linked to deforestation is what is moving these companies to make these announcements. They know they need to do it and there's plenty of guidance there out there now with the Accountability Framework Initiative and there's so many tools, there really isn't any excuse for companies not to be acting.
0: That was Sarah Rogerson, who leads the Forest 500 project at Global Canopy, a nonprofit organization based in England. Corey Brinkham, I'd like to get you on that. That was a voluntary corporate effort that failed to meet its voluntary targets. Does mm-hmm. that suggest that corporations need more pressure than than just uh, their own voluntary goals?
3: Sure, sure. And unfortunately, yes. And, and uh, you know, our, our history at FSC has has borne that out. Um, I think it's it's fair to say that that many of the uh, kind of early stage companies that that got involved in in certification, you know, came came to FSC largely as the result of of campaigns by activists, you know, the Green Pieces of the world and uh, Rainforest Action Network, uh, Stand uh, used to be Forest Ethics, um, you know, and now. There are campaigns uh, by Natural Resources Defense Council and others uh, that uh, that are putting pressure on companies, and, and generally, uh, you know, that's what it takes. I mean, we're we're unfortunately at a you know stage, at least here in the United States, where where consumers aren't necessarily uh, demanding these things, and uh, and so you know, uh, civil society generally in the form of of um, Environmental and and social activists uh, uh, have have needed to step step it up and, but what we have seen is uh, you know we've seen certain companies I think I just saw uh, mentioned there, V the F and and H and M in in the U S uh, we're seeing some real progress with companies like HP and Kimberly Clark and PG who who frankly do source quite a bit of uh, fiber. Uh, pulp uh, from from uh, Brazil, uh, and uh, they are they're taking what perhaps may have been a bit of embarrassment in a marketplace, and uh, as a result of that activism, and, and turning it into to really positive developments, and, and taking advantage of uh, you know what what now is becoming some some leadership in this area.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about ways to combat world deforestation. Coming up retailers flex their buying power against bad actors in Indonesia and China
3: that pressure more or less i guess you'd call that a boycott as well uh, has had a, a significantly positive impact in in some cases almost stopping uh, that deforestation
0: in its tracks that's up next when climate one continues I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about the importance of protecting forests, both far and near. My guests are Corey Brinkema of the Forest Stewardship Council, Tara O'Shea of the satellite imaging company Planet, and Paul Pazimino of Amazon Watch. Several large companies, including H&M and VF, the parent company behind Timberland, Vans, and the North Face, have sworn off sourcing materials from Brazil as a result of the Amazon fires intentionally set to clear the land. Paul Pazamino calls that a good start.
1: Yeah, that's that's fantastic. That should be applauded, and other companies doing the same thing should be encouraged and and patted on the back when they do. The challenge, though, is that it's really the financiers behind. The companies the black rocks the state streets the vanguards who are the largest players when it comes to the deforestation and they are not doing anything at all they are talking the talk larry fink the ceo of blackrock today we delivered hundreds of thousands of petitions in new york um, and representatives from indigenous nationalities in brazil went to say we came to your shareholder meeting in may We told you that this was going to happen. BlackRock is the number one investor in climate change in the world, in coal and gas and deforestation in Brazil. And you have the power, the actual power to make a huge change when it comes to this. He was disregarded. So the challenge to, you know, it's great if certain companies will do that and we need to pressure them to do it. But... We've reached another level of urgency here, not just for the climate, for the people that are suffering it and the targets of the people that we know we can have the power to make a difference.
0: Some environmental groups, though, say that boycotts are not an effective way to pressure Brazil or other governments. Elizabeth Sturkin works with large companies as managing director at the Environmental Defense Fund.
5: When companies like Timberland and North Face say they're gonna stop sourcing from a region like the Amazon, I think it sends a powerful signal but it's not a solution. I think it's a band-aid and it's not getting at the core lever of change. One of the best ways to create change is to use purchasing power. Companies buy a lot of products from the Amazon, beef, soy, pulp and paper. Um, Those are the the important commodities that drive the economy. If you wanna create the change, you have to go where the power lies. Boycotts are great for calling attention to an issue. For years, we saw that McDonald's had a policy that they would not purchase beef from the Amazon and from Brazil. And that meant that they didn't have to deal with the problems and the issues that were arising in the Amazon. Instead, I think they've taken a much more powerful and change-making position by saying, no, they're going to engage in the Amazon and they're going to approach it in what EDF believes is the right way, which is called a jurisdictional approach. It means looking at um, a particular region and engaging with the governments there in a very holistic way. It's a way that supports the company's goals of a strong supply of products, but it also supports indigenous rights And it also supports the agriculture industry in a place like Brazil. It's the kind of power and change that is needed to get us where we need to go on this issue.
0: Elizabeth Sturkin is a managing director at EDF, where she works with large companies, including Walmart and Tyson Foods, and has worked with uh, McDonald's in the past. Brink, about your thoughts on that? She's advocating constructive Mm -hmm. engagement. You need to be at the table, part of these things. and, And that's what you do.
3: It, it is. It is. I mean, I I do think there is a role for boycotts, though, and I think often boycotts need to precede those that, that engagement, and, and you know, at the very least, saying, "Listen, we're 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 going to stop sourcing uh, until we see uh, some of the change that that we're seeking uh, in the supply chain." So, so yes, and then, you know, obviously, I think FSC has has uh, led the way uh, with respect to uh, to uh, certifying. Uh, forest to a set of standards that that social environmental interests activists, in, including indigenous peoples groups, um, labor, local communities, smallholders, uh, environmental NGOs uh, have worked together with economic interests to to devise a, a set of standards, uh, globally consistent set of standards. That uh, that all believe uh, are, are achieving uh, the objectives that that each of the interest group is is looking for, and it, it's definitely a balanced approach. It's not, it's absolutely not uh, necessarily the highest standard that any one group would would necessarily arrive at. But it it uh, in, in, uh, uh, in our world now we have I think some 500 uh, million acres of of certified forests and 38,000 companies participating at FSC. I think we're at about. Roughly twenty percent of the global trade in in roundwood so we 're you know still still have a ways to go, uh, but uh, um, you know we 've proven that uh, that a solution like this can can have real impact but um, you know I think one of our challenges in in Brazil in particular and the amazon is is that uh, most of the certified uh, wood and fiber uh, coming out of that region is in the form of plantations that are largely on on lands that were deforested fifty years ago and it 's mostly what used to be the atlantic forest and so um, what we essentially have done is create a platform for that engagement uh, for for companies that want to purchase from Brazil. Uh, to work with uh, with with local companies, with with local stakeholders, and uh, identify the the solutions that we're seeking on the ground there, and and what that's resulted in. And in fact, in Brazil, our standard is is slightly varied because uh, there's recognition that because of that historic forest loss in in the. Uh, Atlantic region that uh, it 's important to to do restoration, so our our standards even though we 're certifying plantations largely down there. Uh, we're asking for uh, 20% of those lands uh, for any given holding to be restored uh, to to natural forest conditions. FSC so, is yeah. the
0: Forest Stewardship Council. If you're just joining us, Corey Brinkham is president of the Forest Stewardship Council. Other guests today are Tara O'Shea, director of forest programs at Planet, a company that operates low-orbit satellites that image the Earth's surface every day. And Paul Pazimino is associate director at Amazon Watch, an environmental group that advocates for the rights of indigenous people. I'm Greg Dalton. What We're really talking around, we're kind of dancing around the question of capitalism here. Um, Tara O'Shea, capitalism is part of the problem. Do you think capitalism needs to be replaced, reformed? Because really it's, it's the economic drivers of here, of our retirement plans, our consumption, that are driving these things we're talking about.
2: I think it needs to be drastically reformed and informed. Um, I think that, you know, capitalism can measure risks if it's informed on the reality of those risks. And right now it is totally excluding excluding the reality of environmental and social risks to the detriment of many of the most vulnerable populations amongst us. Um, And so I, I, I do think there is a pathway whereby if we can more cost effectively and, and practically measure um, the reality of global change then we can we can more practically account for it in our economic decisions transactions. I think you 'd see you know we, we mentioned here these are really complex problems, and many of these companies that have signed up to these targets they 're they're not necessarily incentivized to, to solve it even in, the, in their own supply chain yet. And it's really getting to the root of those incentives. And, and that's the way we need to be, be focusing our, our solutions.
0: I often say if you put Bill McKibben in the charge of a big oil company, he'd last about a week <laughs> because he would do things and the, and the shareholders would throw him out. And the shareholders would be people that everyone listening to this may be invested in through their retirement plan or their parents are. Uh, so they're playing by certain rules. And I guess what you're saying, terrorism need to change those rules. Paul, uh, do you think that capitalism uh, needs to be overturned or can be reformed to, to address
1: uh, these harms? Um, it's probably no surprise that I don't think it's the solution. Uh, we're, we're at this stage because we've treated the earth like a resource to be exploited for profit. And the only way to get out of that, from my point of view, and I believe from the perspective of many of the communities that we work with, is if we're not looking at it like a line to an end, but we have a holistic perspective on what value there is in, for example, a tree as a tree, not as something that can be tagged as this amount of carbon sequestered or oxygen produced, but the value in and of itself, the living forests, And that is pretty directly in contradiction to any capitalistic model for how we can basically pay ourselves out of this mess. We've allowed these corporations for so long to externalize all of the negative impacts of what they've been doing. And now we're reaping the benefits of it. And to turn back and say, we'll work out with you a way to do it that doesn't hurt so much, it's preposterous to me. We're on the edge of a cliff, and the capitalist perspective would be, let's inch our way up little by little, and we're going to end up falling no matter what happens I- at that rate. It's like if you heard Greta talk at the UN, that's the kind of passion I think we need from everyone to fight back against that kind of perspective, because a radical change is necessary. And this, these fires in the Amazon are actually waking people up to the to the danger of that and the need for a radical change now because it's one thing to talk about yes we have to stop burning fossil fuels which is true and drastically but they don't it's not as visceral a reaction as you see what essentially is the lifeblood of our global weather system burning away every moment that we don't do anything to stop it and other people are setting more fires while we talk about it so that you know, there's. I don't have the answer to. Okay, capitalism isn't perfect, and here's what we do. But I know that's not the solution. And uh, if if we want to sit and talk about ways that it could be, I think in the meantime we're we're spending all the time we have left to really deal with the problem.
0: Belief in incrementalism is some form of denial. You think that, right? Yeah, I mean, 2019. <laughs> it's denial light in a way. If you think that incrementalism is going to get us there, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's, a, and on the tree thing, I, I saw something once that if, if a tree, you know, it's getting hot these days, right? And I'm pretty grateful for every tree that I go by and there's shade. <laughs> and yet that tree doesn't show up in a measure of GDP. But if someone buys lumber and constructs a, Shade, that counts as GDP. Yeah. But what nature provides, that shelter that I'm increasingly appreciating on the warm streets of San Francisco as it's into the 80s and 90s, trees are beautiful and they're providing that service, but we, but we don't... We don't count it. Mm-hmm. Teroshay, I want to switch to the, the Congo as an area that we haven't talked about. We've been talking a lot about the Amazon. The Congo is an area where there's, tell us, you know, uh, the forests, they're coming out of conflict. Some interesting things are happening.
2: Yeah, I think um, in many ways the, the Democratic Republic of the Congo is is a, a successful, a success case right now in, in terms of, of forest conservation. It's important to look to those optimistic places as well, mm-hmm. I think. Um, the DRC is one of the first countries to receive performance-based payments through the Paris mechanism through through the World Bank forest carbon partnership facility uh, Mozambique and Indonesia also received performance-based payments this year um, and I do I think the the DRC is, is an interesting case because it, it does it, it sort of demonstrates the possibility of a new model for economic development right so the DRC is coming out of a, a prolonged period of conflict um, which you know led to very low amount of engagement and development in the country and it's coming into more stable times. And so they're looking at how do I invest in my economy? How do I grow? How do I manage my resources? And and they're doing that in concert with sort of, you know, these, these new international programs that are designed to incentivize a more sustainable and green pathway um, to, to allowing your population to develop. Um, and, and I think they're, they're doing a pretty good job at that. And and more importantly, they're being rewarded for it. And I think that that's really Critical.
0: Corey Brinkham, other bright spots in the management of forests around the world. We always hear about deforestation mm-hmm. in Brazil, Indonesia. Where, where are some things managed well?
3: Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I maybe uh, touch again on the Congo Basin. Uh, we we've seen uh, some recent moves. Uh, just even in the last year, the the president of Gabon announcing that uh, all of their concessions, essentially, if if you're a a company that wants to uh, to manage a forest for forest products that that you would have to be FSC certified in order to do so. So so that's some some real, I think leadership on their part. Uh, you know we'll see see if we can sustain that. But uh, but that that's exciting for sure. You know I think another area. I mean I, I mean all, all these places are still fraught with with risk and there's still significant illegal logging and and threats to indigenous peoples and other local communities. But uh, certainly uh, in, in Southeast Asia and Indonesia specifically, you know, another place where there are uh, significant fires and, and, and tropical deforestation. But, uh, you know, we've, we've seen what what pressure uh, from uh, the consuming countries uh, in, in a form of, uh, you know, your retailers in the United States saying, you know, we're not going to buy, you know, tissue or paper products from Companies like uh, uh, Asia Pulp and Paper and and uh, April, two very large Indonesian slash Chinese corporations that have you know up until fairly recently have been serial deforesters, and that pressure you know essentially, I mean, more or less, I guess you'd call that a boycott as well, uh, has had a, a significantly. A positive impact in 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 some cases, almost stopping uh, that deforestation in its tracks. And, and again, we've got to we've got to hold these companies accountable. Uh, you know, go forward. Uh, um, they they still are are highly imperfect, but uh, but again, you know, we, we see them now considering the possibility of certification, um, wanting to to play nice, I guess, with uh, with some of their major customers in in places like the U.S. and Europe and Japan.
0: Paul Pazimino, uh, the New York Times The Weekly, which is their new uh, TV show that kind of you know took the daily and, and went into video, mm-hmm. did a fabulous piece on gold mining. And gold mining is really one of the untold stories and drivers of deforestation in yeah. the Amazon. And gold is in all of our phones. So tell mm. us, connect those dots for us.
1: Well, gold mining in, throughout the Amazon, uh, a lot of which is in Peru too. Um, and that's, there's a challenge not just for gold. We haven't talked about mining much at all. There's, you know, there's lumber, there's other products we're talking about, cattle. But mining is a massive driver of deforestation. And we're going to rely on mining to have the new technologies that we also need to move off of fossil fuels. So there's a challenge there too. Um, I feel like with everything that we're talking about a rights-based approach to dealing with all of it is actually the most effective not only just but most effective way to handle it whether it be mining or any of these causes and it's actually been shown that the best way to protect forests is to enable the rights and advance the rights of people who are protecting it so when it comes to mining there can and may have to be a way to find it to find a way to produce it so that we can not harm communities and the environment, but get to the, to the uh, minerals that we're actually going to need. Now, gold mining, you know, obviously there's, there are certain elements of it that are important for some of those technologies, and there, there are other uses of it that really don't benefit society.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about protecting forests. Coming up, indigenous people on the front lines.
1: They're at the front of every march, they're welcomed and their voices are enabled as the first ones to be heard from because they literally are the front lines of this fight. That's up next
0: when Climate One continues. This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about climate change and deforestation with Paul Pazimino of Amazon Watch, Corey Brinkema of the Forest Stewardship Council, and Tara O'Shea of Planet. What's one of the biggest drivers behind disappearing forests? Tara O'Shea says it can be found right in your kitchen cabinet.
2: So palm oil makes up, you know, probably somewhere between 3 and 10 percent of pretty much every consumer good <laughs> product that you're going to buy at the grocery store. And so if I'm Unilever, I'm producing, you know, thousands of consumer goods products, each one of which is 3% palm oil, it, it's it's very difficult to, to trace down. Um, it is a leading driver of deforestation, especially in Southeast Asia, but increasingly in Africa. Um, I mm. think especially in Western Africa, it's it's just um, exploded. And I think in some regions of the yeah. Amazon now as well. Um, it is a it's it's a difficult challenge again because of the supply chain management. I will say um, we've been doing some some great work with for- Global Forest Watch, for example. Which, again, because Planet data is kind of that that higher spatial resolution, you can you can not only detect when you know something goes from forest to non-forest, you can actually pick up the, the spatial signature of what's happening on the ground. So to give you a you know, Planet at three meters per pixel, you can see a building, not a car type of thing. So if if a forest is cleared for um, you know palm oil, it's very neat rows, and so um, using our data, we've, we've done some work with Global Forest Watch to actually build a system that can detect automatically when when uh, forest in Indonesia is is converted into palm oil. But again, it's a question of at, you know it, we're sort of waving our, our hands saying, "Hey, we can do this and and we need the rest of, of the global community to work with us and apply it. it it's not a silver bullet on its own.
0: Paul Pazmino, one of the approaches to these sorts of things is to, is to, uh, you know, cordon off a area of forest and say this is a preserve or, or a national park. Right. You know, in fact, when uh, we mentioned uh, North Face, one of the founders of North Face, um, he he did that with a, a lot, thousands of acres in Chile, right? Tompkins uh, conservation effort uh, to to basically sort of protect nature. What's what are the problems with that approach to try to rope off forests or other areas for conservation permanently?
1: Well, I think Sierra Club could talk about what the Trump administration is doing to protect areas in the United States and have a whole panel just on that discussion. And Mm -hmm. the same thing in Latin America, in Yasuni National Park, the most biodiverse part of the Amazon, which is now being drilled for oil by the Ecuadorian government after years of campaign to protect it. And it's the home to many indigenous communities, including isolated indigenous communities in voluntary isolation. Mm -hmm. So... One day it's a park, the next day it's an oil field, and that's not going to cut it.
0: Right. And in terms of the indigenous people, I'm just thinking uh, again about, you know, we mentioned them. Most people don't really interact with indigenous people, don't talk to them, even in our own country. So, you know, tell us a little yeah. more about who these people are. We have this label, but I mean, this image of someone who's, quote, primitive
1: right? right right well one of the most i think encouraging things about the climate movement in the last few years is that indigenous communities are at the front of those messages they're at the front of every march they're welcomed and their voices are enabled as the first ones to be heard from because they literally are the front lines of this fight but they are the, you can't just fall into you know stereotypical images of what it means to be an indigenous person i mean right now Sonia Guajajara, who is one of the leaders of her community in, in Brazil and is the, the head of the National Association of Indigenous Peoples of Brazil, ran for president, is in New York challenging Bolsonaro directly. And of course, he is he's making racist attacks against her. She is a very sophisticated and um, well-organized, powerful advocate for the rights of her people and for Brazil as a as a country. I mean, she ran for president because she wanted to be president of Brazil, not just someone who's looking over her indigenous territory. So they're very much, certainly in Brazil and in other countries, a part of the culture and the country they're a part of, but also they bring, in many cases, an additional perspective of the length and the stewardship of the forest that is needed in order for us to actually survive the climate crisis. And, you know, obviously, Putting people on a pedestal is always a challenge. You have to work with them and treat them with the same level of of respect as anybody else. But the answers that we are seeing as organizations working on indigenous rights and environmental issues that come from indigenous communities seem to us like the ones that are actually viable alternatives to make it through this crisis. And really, that's what we're that's the stage we're at right now. There are a lot of solutions out there. But the, the, we're at the precipice, essentially, you know, and we have to look at what's the most critical thing to focus on right now. Bill McKibben, after Bolsonaro was elected, said the fight to preserve the Brazilian Amazon is the most important environmental fight, period, right now. That, it's, it's, we're up against that, right? So if indigenous leaders there are the most effective ways to protect it, we have to get behind them.
0: We're going to go to uh, our audience questions, invite you to join us over there at the microphone with one one-part comment or question. Welcome to Climate One.
2: Hi, thank you. My name is Johnny Fu. I'd like to know a little bit more about what you mean by an indigenous solution. I think that's something you've been advocating, and it's better than,
5: let's say, the like a new forestry standard that's global sure. internationally. What's the local solution look like?
1: So many of the indigenous communities we work with throughout the Amazon have what some people refer to as life plans or... Uh, in the case of Sarayaku, for example, in Ecuador, they call it casa, casa or living forest, which is not only a permanent protection of the Amazon but and the region where they live, but an understanding of the relationship and that the forest is alive. If we don't treat it as a commodity if we treat it as a living thing, like we would another person, essentially, then it elevates the level of respect that we have for it. And we're not having a debate about, should this area be cordoned off and used for, it? imagine like this arm is going to be used in some economic endeavor. It's your arm. You're not going to have that kind of discussion. So when it comes to indigenous solutions, it's a fundamental shift of the way we see these natural resources and how we interact with them. And my my point about capitalism earlier is, because we've gotten so far away from that, we're now in the dangerous position that we are. If we had an approach more similar to that years ago, we wouldn't be having these discussions. We would have realized that the direction we're moving in is going to put our, our very existence on the planet in jeopardy. So when it comes to those solutions, it's actually identifying those life plans, uh, getting behind the communities that are advocating for them, and then replicating them elsewhere, locally. You know in, even in places that have been developed like the United States, there are many indigenous communities who are still active and organizing here in the in, right in San Francisco and their attitude about the way we look at the effect of our participation in our economy and in, and in the environment with the Chevron Richmond refinery for example and expanding that and what that means for jobs, never letting go of the uh, the, the issue of what is the impact it's going to have on our relationship to the environment here and the people who live in Richmond? So that has to be an element throughout everything that we do. And that's that's what I would think of as an indigenous perspective.
0: Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
3: Uh, hello, I'm Daryl Kenyon from Bucolic Carmel Valley. I feel that a lot of people now want to cut out a little slice of their life to explore this and how can they positively participate. And it seems like the deforestation issue is something that has such a wide reach, like what can you do to contribute positively wondering what input you might have in terms of the more global perspective of the situation.
0: Mm, could I Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Cause we're talking global forests. There's a lot happening here in the United States locally. Who'd like to tackle maybe for Corey, you want to tackle the local yes, forest? Sir.
3: Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. I, I like that sort of, uh, uh, I mean, you, this is where you need to act locally and, and globally, uh, you know I mean I think we've 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 touched on the you know the primary drivers, especially for what's going on in, in Brazil right now uh you know commodities like beef and soy and and to some extent uh, uh forest products as well um yeah we we collectively need to demand. Uh, more responsible sourcing by uh, by these industries that uh, that uh, you know, basically take the exports from from Brazil, and I, I don't know if the solution, for example, in in beef and soy is some some sort of certification as well, but but certainly a set of standards, uh, uh, you know, an absolute minimum set of standards, and and hopefully uh, uh, some that that uh, we can see, you know, whether they're smallholders or others be able to. Uh, improve over time but uh but when it does come to forest products i mean that's uh you know fsc is 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 offering that that solution for responsible forest management and uh and 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 covering right now a pretty pretty wide array of products from you know typical uh, timber and wood uh paper products to uh you know things you wouldn't necessarily realize that come from a forest like rubber and and now even fabrics uh, uh, being made from, from forest fiber. So uh, I, I think it's really important that we, we choose to buy responsibly and, and really encourage the, the companies that make our products uh, to do that on our behalf.
0: So as we, as we wrap up here, let's end up on, on, on an upbeat here. You know, what do you see as some bright spots, uh, whether protection of indigenous people or uh, of forests? Uh, you know, Bring us home on an upbeat.
1: Well, okay, I'll do my best. For... <laughs> it may not be in your nature, but try <laughs> I mean, so right now, in the last month, to be totally frank, I've worked every single day, tw- usually 12 to 14 hours. At Amazon Watch, it has not stopped for an instant because there's so much more attention. Like, we, we feel the anxiety of we must capture this moment and make sure – It never goes back to normal. This is the new normal. And the reason being that the people who are contacting us are feeling like my life and my family is at risk as well as the Amazon. What am I going to do? What can I do? They don't just send money. They want to know how they can donate. I mean, how they can donate their time, how they can volunteer, who they should be calling. We all can be, and in my view, have to be climate activists anymore. Learning about stuff is great. We need to educate ourselves, but if we're not not acting at the same time, it's not going to make a difference. It's too late. We have to decide, okay, we're in university now and that we're going to Sign up for the classes. Maybe we can specialize, whether it's satellite imagery, whatever our specialization is going to be. But it's going to come with action, and it's going to come with engagement. So if you're not supporting an organization that's doing this work voluntarily or by donating, if you're not engaging in your local community to find out about things like the tropical forest standard in California, there are local actions that will affect global decisions and impacts on people halfway across the globe now we know the positive things we know we can do those things we know they're effective and there's a whole group of people out there organizing action to make it effective we're going to pressure blackrock until they change and now you can find out how you can be a part of that and join that pressure and know that it's going to make a real difference before you might have thought i don't know i can make a phone call but is that going to be enough no there's a campaign so support the people that are doing it my son is 11 years old Two months ago, I had a conversation with him. You know the, what are you going to be when you grow up and it was a both a, pot, a bittersweet thing because he said well i 've got to be a climate activist because what 's the point of doing anything else mm. and now of course he 's my son, so he <laughs> hears this stuff a lot, but he gets that there 's nothing else to do right now if we 're not going to make a change here. So the positive thing for me is people are doing it in a way they 've never done it before it 's not quite enough yet but Look at yourself. It's not just what you eat or don't eat or what you drive or don't drive. It's where are you engaged and how are you engaging other people to do it? Now's a moment to seize to get other people to take action with you. We've
0: been talking about global deforestation here at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests were Paul Pazimino, Associate Director of Amazon Watch, Corey Brinkema, President of the Forest Stewardship Council US, and Tara O'Shea, director of forest programs at the satellite imagery company, Planet. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.